Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is a truly fascinating conversation with Shannon Mattern. Shannon is a professor in the Media Studies Department at the New School in New York City, where she teaches courses on a uh, really diverse range of subjects, including maps, information infrastructure, urban intelligence, and cities. Her research interests are equally diverse and include topics like media, media spaces, archives, libraries, and infrastructure. She's written multiple books and writes a regular long-form column for Places, the online architecture and urbanism journal. In this conversation, Shannon and I talk about media studies, what it is and, and what that means and how she got into it. And we also talk about theory and how to connect theory to practice and connecting theoretical texts with physical artifacts and how design and architecture and media are different ways of solidifying particular ideologies. You know, media and media theory is a topic that comes up on the podcast a few times, and I've mentioned finding a lot of relationships between media theory and design theory. So I was really excited to talk to Shannon about these topics and uh, see what kind of parallels we could find. And as you'll hear, this was a really wide-ranging conversation. Shannon is just so smart. And this episode is just really uh, packed with with wisdom. I feel like I learned so much. And as I tell her at the end of the conversation, my head was just spinning uh, with new ideas and questions and thoughts. So I think that this will be a conversation that I return to a few times and one that I think you'll get a lot out of as well. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional bonus content and episode previews. Memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just really appreciate all your support uh, if you're able to support that. But for right now, here is my conversation with Shannon Mattern. I want to start at a very base, probably overly simplistic level, because you're a professor in the media studies department here at the new school. And so I kind of want to start with what is media studies? Like, what does that actually mean? Okay, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> okay. is, that too, are, is that too weird no, to start that way? No, not at all. And there are still people, I guess, in more traditional universities and in more traditional disciplines that don't really even regard it as a, 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 um, oh, really? a, okay. a, a legitimate field of study. So it's relatively recent. It um, kind of coalesced as an academic, I would even call it a discipline. It's more of a field around the time that Marshall McLuhan kind yeah, of became yeah. a big public figure. So recognizing that media are not just kind of neutral substrates that carry content, that yeah. they actually play as a graphic designer or a designer in any field would know that the materials, the forms you use to convey ideas are just as potent as the actual information and content and data that you stuff into them. Okay, so two questions now based off of that. So then how, how do you define, I guess we're even going to go even more oh, sure. simply, what does media, how do you define media then? 
Well, I'm going to give you an equally frustrating answer to that, too. Okay. Because again, <laughs> These questions you know, are just going to get lower okay. and lower. That's okay. We can go deeper. It's okay. like the turtles all the way down. Okay. But uh, so, again, if you go to a more traditional discipline, a uh, more traditional type of media studies or communication yeah. studies program, they might be looking at things like radio, television, film, and right. in more contemporary right. decades, they'll look at different types of kind of internet. Sorry, not internet. But yes, you could look at the internet, but I was going to say interactive projects, right. social right. media, right. for instance. Okay. Okay. But again, if you take kind of the McLuhan tradition and the much more capacious way people think about media today and a lot of the more progressive programs, media can be pretty much anything. Yeah. And this, again, was yeah. McLuhan's influence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So are you very much a... Uh, is McLuhan kind of a touchstone in this field of study for, for everyone? Yeah. I think he is... I wouldn't call him a taboo subject, but he is someone who is a name that shall not be named in many okay. cases because that, he's regarded as a... Um, a not terribly rigorous scholar. He's more known for like throwing probes out there and seeing if they stick yeah. than actually presenting okay. things that he could substantiate. That was my yeah. my hunch. I'm a. I mean, I'll I'll just yeah. I'm a big fan of mm -hmm. of McLuhan and find have found so much kind of influence or or the way I think about my work as a designer from him. But I as I've started to dabble more in reading kind of where you where you work sensing a, a bit of a conflicting relationship there so i don't want to i don't want to just be like oh, i love marshall McLuhan and you know kind of ruin this no, this conversation no no totally i mean there are some people who um and this is again one of my many frustrations with the academy who would judge someone if they right. had proclaimed that they love marshall McLuhan. but <laughs> right. whether or not you subscribe to his ideas or regard him to be kind of a, a rigorous methodologist which he probably wasn't i think still some of the really provocative ideas he put out into the yeah. intellectual environment have informed a lot of people's work whether they will recognize it or okay. articulated right, or not. Right. right. So yeah. how how I'm gonna make a little bit of a turn. How does one get into this or how did you find yourself studying this and working in this this area? Well, I think the fact that I think I'm known by a lot of people for writing about really diverse subjects. Yeah. And I think that yeah. comes from my background. I started out in high school thinking I wanted to be an engineer, so I didn't turn oh, to engineering. Okay. Like uh, aerospace and nuclear engineering, just because that was kind of uh, present in the in the university town I grew up in. Yeah. And I was good at math and science, so I thought okay. that's what I should do. Then yeah. I wanted to go to medical school, so I was a chemistry major. Oh wow! But I always took a literature course as an I guess I could say an escape from the math and science every semester and realized that that was where my greatest pleasure was. So I switched to become a literature major and then ultimately realized that, as I mentioned before, I was just as much interested as the shape of the book. The right. fact that these Norton anthologies I had to be reprinted on this like onion skin paper. Right. And how did that shape my interaction with the text? Right. There was a certain kind of affect that I brought to the reading process when the materiality of the book was something that I was was so much ingrained with my reception of those particular texts. So yeah. that's what that's ultimately where I started to realize that I became just as much interested in the media okay. as the message, yeah. I yeah. guess you could say. <laughs> and then ultimately when I did a PhD in media studies, but even there I was kind of all maybe fortuitously all over the place. I took courses in urban planning, urban history, architecture, yeah. history, elsewhere. I want to I talk about the PhD a little bit because I did a little bit of, of reading on that. I have two, two questions. First uh, will be a, a hopefully kind of quick question and we can move on. As I was researching, you saw that your advisor was Neil Postman. Is That's the Neil Postman amusing ourselves to death? Yes. Neil Postman? Okay, yes. what was that? 
like? What was that like? I uh, I'm not sure about this, but I think I was the last dissertation that that dissertation defense he attended before okay. he passed away okay. a year later. Okay. So I was at the very end of his career. Okay. And uh, his particular areas of research, I would say, weren't kind of topically uh, perfectly aligned with mine, but his sensibility, his way of being a public academic, a public intellectual, oh, yeah. his persona, the just way he was in the world and the way he kind of practiced his philosophy yeah. was something that I didn't see with a lot of other academics. And as oh, I, as a graduate student, trying to figure out, like, what kind of a scholar do I want to be someday, the way he was in the world was something that really stood out to me. Um, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I want to come back to that because that's yeah. a topic that I'm really interested in. But I want to, I want to talk about the PhD itself because it's called building ideologies. Was oh was yeah, the the, I, I would prefer to ignore and forget, have the world forget my dissertation. But yes, okay, I wrote okay. my dissertation on architecture. Okay, yeah. well the reason I ask mm -hmm. that um, is, I, I, I obviously did not read it. I don't know. Please don't. Totally what it's about. <laughs> um, but the, the that title was fascinating to me because I've started to define. Uh, design or and especially graphic design as kind of uh, this phrase I've, I've been using lately is design is ideology made artifact mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and building ideology sounded like a very yeah. similar and so I was just curious I mean obviously if you don't want to talk about it oh, we don't sure, have to talk sure. about it, but kind of what, what what did that look like or, or what was that research like? Well, I had discovered in graduate school that I was really interested in architecture and space as a medium. Again, okay, you can see okay. kind of that yeah, influence yeah. as well. And I wanted to find a great case study. And it just happened at the time that Rem Koolhaas was chosen to design oh, right. the Seattle Public Library. Right. So I went to Seattle, sat in on a lot of the design process, looked through all the documents related to the design process. So I yeah. was just as much interested in how that building came into being. So the gerund of building. Oh, so the act, the verb of building. So how you right. did all this negotiation between different stakeholders, city right. officials, designers, fitting it into the context of Seattle and its kind of rise through Amazon and Microsoft, for instance. Yeah. So I looked at how you essentially, through that design process, negotiated kind of your ideological, not your, but many different right. stakeholders and public's ideological standpoints. How did that influence, or, or maybe influence isn't the right word, but I'm, I'm curious how that kind of research in that project ended up setting you up for the career you had. And it's, a, I mean, and have, and it comes to, back to the very first answer that you gave about media not being this kind of neutral thing. And it sounds like you were looking at that very literally in how it's affecting space. Right. Right. So in that research, I looked at, for example, how the material you choose to make a model out of or the degree oh, of finality or roughness of a rendering could completely shape the nature of a public debate. Yeah. If you show a particular public, like you have a public forum and you show them like some CGI imagery, they're going to say like, well, you've already figured it out. What do you want oh, us right, to say? Right, so right. just seeing how the choice of modes of representation, the media it's presented through or on yeah. really shaped how the whole discourse was conducted, essentially. So how oh, that set me up for the career that I have, I mean, that's a, a big story, but I'd yeah. say that, again, drawing on the, the literature, it's not only the, like the published work, but also the talking to people in multiple disciplines. Now, right. when I talked to architects, I talked to city planners, I talked to the people who work at the loading dock at these buildings. Oh, interesting. So getting interested in 
again, how all those different discourses and needs kind of have to converge and yeah. produce a building at the yeah. end that seems to tries to satisfy as many of these people, but also just recognizing the the difficulty and the really amazing challenge of of casting your net wide and doing research on a particular topic and realizing how any specific designed object, you can trace its tentacles out incredibly far and touch on the disciplinary knowledges yeah. and practices of so many different people. I had, I had read in, uh, in preparing for this another interview that you had, had given and said that, uh, I, think, I think I'm getting this order right, that post-PhD you were kind of looking not just at academic jobs but also at actual design jobs. Yes. Um, what types of jobs would those have been or what, what, were, what was that kind of alternate career that you could have had? Uh, well, I was doing a postdoc at Art History at the University of Pennsylvania, okay. so that yeah. was another kind of fortuitous right. thing that happened because I was in this PhD in media studies, had written about architecture, a modern architectural historian yeah. uh, expressed interest in working with me, which is how I ended up in Art History. But as the next step, I realized, again, even then, this was almost 15 years ago or so, I realized that the academic job market was already pretty precarious at that time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and considered both for practical reasons that maybe I should look at other options, but also because I think I would have been equally happy. And fortunately, teaching in a school like the New School, where they do values multiple, do value that is multiple forms of, of yeah. they recognize that scholarship is not just publishing books in firewalled journals, right, right. but actually doing stuff in the world. Right. I think that this has allowed me, the job that I ultimately got and I'm grateful for, allowed me to bring together, to converge those different pathways that I had carved out for myself. So I had thought about maybe getting an MARC actually oh, okay. for a while. I mean, that was, I was yeah. going to ask, like, was yeah. that a... That possibility. Was, that was a possibility. Okay. And then I did an internship at an architecture firm. I was like, nope, I'm not going to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. I totally glamorized the day-to-day -day yeah. life there. Yeah. But also, um, I had considered working in kind of not-for-profits or okay. like like places like, I'm not saying I specifically pursue these institutions, but places right. like the Van Allen Institute okay. or the okay. Architectural yeah. League or yeah. organizations like that. Okay. I mean, there, I asked that question completely selfishly because I feel like that's a, a tension that I feel in my own career and it's kind of why I went to, to graduate school was feeling like it was one or the other and not wanting to pick one or the other and mm -hmm. I think still now after that I still feel like I'm kind of straddling both of those in a lot of ways and want to be both a practitioner, a designer, but also in academia and it's a question that comes up on the podcast a lot and even just when I talk to students who are kind of interested in these things feeling that if they go too far into the theory that it almost paralyzes their their making because uh, it's too in their head or they get stuck in these ideologies mm -hmm. and don't want to contribute to it. Um, so I don't know if that's a question other than, do you know, well, it's <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah, there? It's something I've thought about too because on occasion I will teach like our introductory theory class yeah. and there's often always, even if my classes are kind of project-based, I always incorporate a lot of history and theory. Yeah. Over the course of my nearly 20-year career, the way I teach theory has evolved pretty dramatically. Okay. In part because my own relationship to it has evolved as well. I used to be intimidated by it. I used to kind of deify these people, presuming yeah. that they were presenting some gospel that I just had to work and work and work to try to understand right, right. so that I could like put on their glasses and see the world through their lenses. But ultimately I realized that these are, and I've written this elsewhere too, like these are fallible people, yeah. often egomaniacs, yeah. Yeah. often really bad writers. And that's why I can't understand it. So it's not to <laughs> right, give up right. on them 
too quickly. You put in the work to try to understand what they're saying, but not to regard their work as gospel. Essentially, to think of it as tools to think with. And that's right. try to how I try to desacralize theory in my classes to help students think. This is these are tools to be critical, interesting frameworks that can you can apply to the work that you're doing. But they should not have the power to become paralyzing forces. Right. I love that. That's actually <laughs> like, that's a great way to to kind of phrase that. How do you how does that kind of play out in your own own work, both as as a teacher, but then also as someone who's doing your own research. How how do you start to kind of think about how those things come together? How theory comes together? How, yeah, how theory kind of plays into the work that you're doing, whether you're teaching it and kind of saying, showing that, that these are uh, not perfect beings, but then also as you're furthering your own scholarly research, how do, how do you fit those in? Right. I mean, some people, when I go give a talk somewhere, they introduce me as a media theorist. And I'll never reject that. I will never want to embarrass somebody. But honestly, that label just does not feel right for me. Because I have just always assumed that, like, calling oneself a media theorist implies there's a certain kind of connotation to it that it just doesn't feel like it it suits me very well. So what do you, how would you... I don't even know. I, okay. I like actually. I much prefer when I gave it to give. Sometimes when I give it to talk, people will say like, "I don't even know what to call you." I'm like, I love that. That's okay. perfect. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, um, how do I negotiate these things in my own practice? And I think part of it is that sometimes you might be asked, you know, who's who's your what's your theoretical framework or what's your methodology? I have gotten really comfortable with the fact that I don't subscribe to the school of any particular theorist. When oh, I write an article, I am not writing it in a Bourdieuian frame, or oh. I am not kind of doing a Foucauldian analysis of anything. I start with the material, with the designed object in many cases. Oh, okay. And as I investigate it, do you know a whole mix of different methods, discourse analyses, um, kind of uh, studied material objects themselves, interview people. Often yeah. I have read enough theory to know when, oh, this is really where kind of some, I don't know, uh, Simon Don can become mm-hmm, interesting mm-hmm, or useful. Mm-hmm. So I allow them to kind of emerge when the material oh, actually like calls for it yeah. and not make them kind of this pervasive, oppressive force throughout the entire thing that I'm thinking or writing about. Yeah, I have, okay, I have, um, I have like five different questions based on that answer or, or like five different thoughts that I want to try to form into okay. a question because I'm, I'm taking what you're saying and I'm applying it I'm kind of putting it into a graphic design context and thinking how that could apply in graphic design. And I'm thinking about two things specifically that may or may not be connected. This might be a dead end. Uh, I'll just warn okay. you now. Um, but one, one thing that, that that makes me think about is the graphic design profession almost, this is an overgeneralization, but can often default to any kind of anti-theoretical approach or kind of tries to keep that away um, in, in with a focus on making or on aesthetics or on kind of what the actual end product is like without any kind of uh, theoretical rigor about why these things exist, the culture that they came out of or put into, uh, whether in a contemporary context or in history, often design history classes don't really talk about those things. It's just, uh, here's a series of artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the flip side, when there is some sort of theoretical discourse in graphic design, and I hear this a lot from my students and from, from listeners of the podcast, it's uh, hard to understand, it's uh, too dense, and then they don't see how it has any connection to the work 
to, to the actual making, to the actual artifacts. And so I guess if I were to put this into a question, and I don't know if I can, I'm, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how these kind of theoretical texts can be applied to the objects, because you talked about looking at the objects first for a design student, for example, like let's just make it really simple, for a design student who's interested in these things but doesn't see any kind of connection, how would you, how would you kind of help them begin or start to see how those things come together? Well, that, that's a big pedagogical challenge, and I think that... <laughs> and I'm asking because it's like right. what I want to know how to do too, I think, yeah. in a lot of ways. I think also, I've maybe also come to realize that there's a rite of passage, a period of struggle that you kind of have to go through. Yeah, yeah. You have to go through kind of like the fetishizing theory. Right, right. The not oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. And then you become kind of productive. Disillusionment sounds like a bad thing. Yeah. I think it can be a really liberating thing. Mm. So I feel like there's no easy way, no easy kind of pedagogical strategy that can help you take your graduate students, your undergraduates. Yeah. Um, they do have to read the theoretical texts. Yeah. And then I think it's this is the cha this is a challenge though because a lot of folks they have those four years as an undergrad or maybe two or three years as a grad student then maybe they don't have a lot of opportunities to read theory right. through reading groups or have a group discussion about them after that right. I have the luxury of being in these types of environments yeah. for yeah. twenty years or so so I can allow my thinking in relation to theory to evolve but. I wish I wish there were a way to kind of compress that rite of passage you have to go through. Yeah. But I think if people, you have, if you can plant a seed so that it becomes something that people want to engage with in their professional careers, yeah. I think they will eventually get to that liberating feeling that this is a tool I can use and not um, like a, 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 a uniform I have to wear and play a particular yeah. role living through this particular theory. Yeah. This connects nice, this might be a good way to come back to when you're talking about uh, Neil Postman and kind of being a, a public scholar, kind of writing for for an audience, because that's another question that comes up a lot in these conversations, um, especially when I talk to architecture critics who are writing um, either in kind of uh, daily newspapers or magazines. They're not writing for other architects in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. And this always comes up because so much of graphic design writing is for the profession. And I'm very interested in how how one can write rigorously about a profession for people who are not in the profession, but also not dumb it down that the people in the profession scoff okay. at it. Yeah. Well, this might and, lead me to go back and add another section to that question you asked before, okay. so yeah. how to teach this yeah. type of relationship to theory. Yeah. I think also it's a selection of the artifacts and texts that you expose students to. So one thing I have kind of found has worked really well over the years is that if you do want them to read the heavy theory, you pair it then with an application text and then mm. something from the popular press. So they yeah. actually see this is not just something that is living, floating around in the ether in some rarefied yeah. realm. This actually applies in some type of actual design practice in the world. Right. Not only in kind of an, a para-academic text, but then you actually see it applied even though somebody in the New York Times might not actually evoke the name of Althusser or Marx, right, you right. can actually, they will have seen right. the progression of abstraction to concreteness. So I think that pairing of readings and examples can help people to make the transition to see the applicability of theoretical and critical yeah, concepts in yeah. everyday practice. And so was this something that was appealing to you when you were doing your PhD and even now that you're writing not just for academia, but that your writing is out in the world for other people to read? 
Was that a conscious decision, I guess, is um, kind of the question? Well, maybe it was in the back of my mind because okay. I, I was considering, you know, non-academic careers. So I did want to did want to think right. about engaging right. with different publics in different ways. But it's partly the way that the academy is set up and that you are discouraged from doing any type of non-academic type, um, traditionally academic right. work until you get tenure. Right. So it's something right. actually I started to write with non-academic um, publications even before then, but okay. I did feel like I had to yeah. do my duty and play the whole peer review game, which I right. hardly ever play anymore because I don't think the peer review has a whole lot of value to add, at least in my experience. Right. Um, I'm sure people will disagree with yeah. that. I've yeah. had some have had some great experiences, but in the end, the weight. The rigmarole you have to go through, I don't know, is that much more valuable than the really fantastic relationship I have with my editors right. at Places Journal or when I right. work with the Harvard Design Magazine. Yeah. That inner back and forth I have with my editors is something you do not get in a peer-reviewed journal. And it's ultimately much more rewarding because they help yeah. you translate your maybe abstruse ideas into concrete kind of articulations that a general public or an informed public can understand. Yeah. What is the, How does that shape... Or does it shape at all your own research or your topics or how you talk about your topics? That act of working with an editor for publishing in places instead of a peer review, does that actually change the yeah. research process at all? I would, I would say so. And part of it is that if you're doing like an academic research project, you typically spend just... Um, you're doing your empirical part, looking at the actual supposed topics. You're doing a case study of a designed yeah. object or yeah. something. But you also are spending a huge time doing kind of the literature review and then framing the literature yeah. review, looking at who has said what about this, what theoretical frameworks are useful, what methods have previous scholars used. I do that work to some degree, but yeah. that is also the stuff that I keep in the back of my head and it informs right, my right, writing. Right, right. And maybe I'll put it in a footnote, or maybe I'll right. say in the middle of, a, of an article, you know, this actually... Um, you know, to use a canonical example, like Hannah Arendt can help us think right. through this idea. Right. So let's talk about her for three sentences. Right. But I think if I were writing an academic article, that would all be foregrounded, and I would spend a lot more yeah. effort kind of um, massaging that work and setting. It takes you so much setting up before you actually get to yeah. your topic yeah. in academic writing. I mean, the, re the reason I ask that is because I'm, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, well, I think everybody's talking a lot about this kind of idea of fake news, and this has come up on the podcast a lot. It's the example that I go to because I think it's really easy that the technology industry, I feel like, is really talking about that more and realizing that things like Facebook, and I worked at Facebook for a while, so I, I like um, maybe I'm especially conscious to, to thinking about this. Um, and I think that fits directly into what you're talking about of at the very first question of these uh, different mediums have biases and are not neutral. And I think it's just as much a design problem. And I, I don't know how, how designers can start to talk about that in an educated and informed way of what are what are we as people who maybe have often thought of ourselves as just decorators or it's just the visual finish at the end, realizing that that's not all, that's mm -hmm. not just what we do and that, that we have some uh, complicit yeah. in some of these things. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on kind of 
and we don't have to limit it to fake news or Facebook, but to the role of design in all of these things that we're talking about and how the, the act of designing and the act of creating these artifacts um, are pushing particular ideologies or are maybe kind of being in, invisibly uh, furthering ideologies. Do you know what I mean? Sure. That was a really weird way to no, phrase that no, question. Do you I know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, I understand what you're getting at. And uh, ideology is definitely a core part of the kind of things I think yeah. about. But I think I often pair it with epistemology, too. Oh, okay. So, like, okay. how we know what we know. Yeah. And that's a lot of my work is looking at how design at different scales. Yeah. So I look at kind of the design artifact, like the screen, how we use the real estate, let's just use oh, right, the ideological right, term, right. the real estate of the screen, to the media, the object, it's the gadget itself, to right now I'm working on a project on furniture. Oh, interesting. So how we design media furniture and then architecture scale and the urban scale and kind of the infrastructural scale. Yeah. Now if you think about each of those as kind of designed objects or systems, right. that they have the capacity to non-neutrally shape the way we know things. Right. So they participate, these objects actually participate in what and how we know things in the world. Right. So, and of course, knowledge has, in Foucauldian terms, like is power at the yeah. same time. Yep. So there's yep. where ideology comes into play necessarily in all cases too. So yeah, I do think that it's whether it's designing particular interfaces, you know, the way we design ballots, the way we design right. online forms we fill out. The fact that, you know, even the boxes we have to check, the user agreements we just you know, yeah, automatically yeah, the box. Yeah. These are either encouraging kind of contemplation or just rote kind of scanning of particular um, particular information. So there are lots of different design disciplines that can kind of, their, their forces converge in making things kind of either transparent or, or opaque knowledge. Things right. that just glide through or things that are actually worth contemplating. What I'm interested in is where in the design process those types of questions are raised. And I know, I know you're not a designer, but I'm, I'm curious as someone who is on the other side and who has spent a lot of time studying this, when, are those question, when should those questions be asked? Because it seems like for me, and I don't mean to, for this to be so negative, but it's, it's after the fact a lot of times. And how, how, do, how do you start to bring in these questions into the design process? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really right. challenging process. Yeah. And, and I, in part because of the way I know a lot of design, actual practical applications are kind of sequenced where you're trading things off to different teams yeah, or different yeah, teams are yeah. working together. It can be really difficult to have this kind of idealized way of responsibly and ethically practicing design and yeah. then how that can actually play out in a real kind of um, commercial setting, for yeah, instance. Right. But, for example, if you are designing an app that is promoting kind of, I don't know, um, uh, marginalized populations, use of public services, for instance, you right. might say, well, we really need to think through it with our graphic and interaction designers about how to make this intelligible and seamless, et cetera. Yeah. At the yeah. same time, perhaps you should be asking kind of the questions like, why an app? Right. You know, is right. that right. actual choice of modality the best thing? So yeah. it's a kind of one of those infrastructural recursion type of questions. Yeah. So um, it's not just a matter of t of um, in in kind of integrating these mm -hmm. ethical and critical questions into the sensibilities of one designer. Mm -hmm. The fact that each each kind of different capacity of design is so integrated with all the others to produce a yeah. designed thing at the end means that I don't know where you actually insert the question. Just that everybody should be asking it from the very beginning <laughs> right. of the project. Right, right. Um, I have a completely different, completely other question that 
that I've been thinking about throughout this whole conversation, and you've you've used metaphors of uh, real estate and architecture, and talking about kind of digital spaces mm-hmm. also, and I think that comes back to to kind of your early your early research. I'm I'm curious. Do you see parallels in how the physical world has been built up and the way digital media is being built up? You know, are the are the ways of thinking, the ways of interacting, the ways of communicating, the politics of the physical environment, are those being echoed pretty closely online? Uh, I wouldn't say uh, terribly closely. It's not as if we can find kind of morphologies. We can say, like, look at this particular building and say, oh, look, it's the Internet writ large, for instance. Yeah. Because so many of our cities and our towns ex- pre-existed. Or right, kind of right. Predated the rise of digital technologies. That said, digital technologies have allowed for an entirely new form of urbanism. I wouldn't say entirely new, but a somewhat novel form of urbanism, like data-driven urbanism, building tabula rasa, as we're doing right. in a lot of, kind right. of smart city projects around the world. In those cases, I do think that people have aspirations to think about if if the internet were the fundamental morphology, politics, ideology, economy, if we could use that as kind of like the ur. Uh, network form for all ways of thinking about yeah. sociality and urbanization. Yeah. How could we make it manifest in built space, for instance? But even with our existing cities, I think that digital technologies are shaping the way people are thinking about how to maintain them or how to adapt certain areas. So some people are proposing using digital technologies to do more performance-based zoning, for oh, instance. Oh, right, yeah. So you can do yeah. kind of live readings rather than having uh, restrictive kind of static senses of what can happen in certain parcels of the city. Instead, you let people do what they want as long as they don't go above a certain decibel level or as oh, long right. as like, they don't... Um, they're not emitting kind of offensive smells or changing air quality yeah. Um, yeah. measurably. So as long as you can measure those things, they'll supposedly allows for greater flexibility. The challenge is like the the zoning sur- yeah. solve more purposes than than um, right. measurable sensors right. actually allow you to capture. Yeah, this is a question that I ask everybody. Um, and I, I'm especially curious uh, as someone who's you know, very outside of graphic design. What are the, from your view, what are the, what do you see as the issues or topics that graphic designers should be thinking about right now? Or, or if there was some sort of critical gaze on the profession and the work, what are the things that are kind of pressing graphic design right now? Well, that is a huge question I'm asking a non-graphic designer. I think that some of the questions you asked in terms of how graphic design can participate yeah. in a lot of these kind of there's a in academia there's a crisis for everything. So yeah. we overuse the term crisis yeah. we use it far too often. But like the crisis of credibility, crisis oh, of epistemology. Yeah. So the fact that again you are not just shaping content, you are shaping the way people know things. Right. And the right. way kind of social networks form, as I'm sure if someone yeah. who worked for yeah. Facebook, you're yeah. very much aware yeah. of. So recognizing these kind of real fundamental, kind of much lower on Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah, type of, yeah. of, of uh, functions you're actually serving, you're kind of not at the aesthetic tip. Right. You are actually serving, again, down that stack of infrastructures. Yeah. I mean, the reason I asked that question, um, and that was a great answer, is because I, I was my follow-up question is, what are the issues or topics that are facing media right now, or, or someone who works in media studies who is... Not a media theorist, but what are the, 
what would a media critic, what should they be looking at right now? And I was curious if there were parallels between, what are the parallels between the kind of issues that people studying media should look at and people studying graphic design should look at? I think so. Again, and I don't want to reify this whole stack metaphor too, because okay. that has gotten, it has been co-opted by certain kind of theoretical schools in recent yeah, years, yeah. even though it's like a very old model that kind of uh, like network yeah. engineers and people yeah. have been using yeah. for a long time. But anyway, this idea that there are kind of different layers of infrastructure that you have to work yeah. with. Yeah. I think that's something that media studies people and critical data studies people, critical algorithm studies people are becoming more aware of. Yeah. That rather than media literacy used to be the thing that was sometimes taught in schools. Yeah. If you had yeah. a good, came from a good school, you probably had a media literacy thing. And that's been around for several decades. And there you would kind of look at an advertisement and see how women were represented. Right. Or watch a film right. and see how African Americans. So it was very text, textual analysis oriented. And I think that again, looking at that stack, I think media studies recognizes that that's not enough. Yeah. You also have to have people ask questions about what are the difference between the different screens you are encountering right, every day, right, right. or how does net neutrality factor into what you can even see on your screens, and the people who you share yeah. your society with. Yeah. So looking at all these different layers of um, kind of hardware and network and yeah. supply chains, right. all this kind of stuff. Right. And those are all design. I mean, those are all design questions, and yes. also it's all the same kind of yeah. same kind of thing. That's really interesting. Uh, my, I have kind of two questions that, um, the last question that I ask everybody is what are the, who are the kind of the writers or the critics or theorists who have really influenced you? Um, so I'm going to ask you that question, but then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question, which is if you were putting together a reading list, I'm sure you probably have a, a reading list, for someone who is new to this field or a graphic designer who is interested in these parallels, what are those, who are those writers or those books that they should read as kind of a good entry into thinking about these things? Could you say the second one again? How that, yeah. I want to figure out how that's different than the first. Oh yeah, so okay. the first one is just who, who has influenced you, and then the second one is someone who's new to all of these. Who are the good kind of intro, kind of primer people to get into studying these things? Okay. And they might not be different. I didn't mean okay. to, to completely separate them. Okay. Well, I, these are the types of questions that I wish I had kind of looked through my bookshelf before I, know, I came I here because I know I'm going to forget some people yeah. who have been super formative. But the people who have been very influential to me uh, were, I would say, some of the scholars I read early in grad school who totally, I mentioned McLuhan, yeah. that was one yeah. thing. I've encountered him as an undergraduate. Harold Innes, his oh, mentor, yeah. who's an economist, who also thought about kind of infrastructures yeah. as media also. And then a couple uh, people I encountered really early in graduate school really shaped my research agenda from there on. And those would be Beatrice Colomina oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh, Lynn Spiegel, okay. who is a media scholar, who a media, media and design historian, who's written a lot about how the rise of the television and the rise of the mid-century home kind of oh, shape right. gender and right. class relations within families. Yeah. For instance, Diane Harris also writes about some of this okay, stuff. So a lot of these people... Um, made feminist scholarship something that was really concrete and accessible yeah. for me because I did read some kind of feminist scholars who did like feminist theory but when right. I saw it actually play out in like Lynn Spiegel or Diane Harris's yeah. work yeah. that really kind of made it seem accessible and concrete to me. Yeah. Um, and that comes back to what you were talking about earlier of pairing these things with actual yes. artifacts and so that was there from that was very early on for you you were seeing that happen. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah that's interesting. Yeah. 
who else do I have a lot of books from? Well, you know, everybody goes through their Walter Benjamin phase oh, yeah. as well, too. So yep. that was formative for me for a while. Yeah. Lewis Mumford, I still oh, think, is yeah. pretty amazing. Again, I've spoken to some architectural historian friends, which I am not, who have said that, again, like with McLuhan, there's some shame in acknowledging that you're influenced by Mumford. But he's oh, like, really? maybe there's oh, a resurgence of Mumford. I didn't know that either. So okay. I'm kind of shamelessly... <laughs> I've always been a, kind of a marginal fan of Mumford. Just, that, first of all, his ambition. The fact yeah. that who else writes yeah. in yeah. the entire history of the city? This is essentially some of the books he's written and the breadth of topics yeah. he's covered, too. Yeah. Um, who else? I was informed at times by, not necessarily by the writing style, but the ideas of people like Donna Haraway, as oh, many people yeah. are. Yeah. Um, so a lot of post-feminist theory, got, I got, and post-humanist theory, I got really into for a while in graduate school. Some of the stuff I kind of either grew out of or right, right. moved beyond, but it still is very much it's back in the back of my head and forming the types of things that I, yeah. I think about and enjoy. Johanna yeah. Drucker is oh, a yeah. person. I yeah. know that Ann Burdick mentioned her. Yep. Ann Burdick's work also yeah. Yeah. as well. Um, Catherine Hales is somebody else oh, yeah. that she mentioned. Matt Kirschenbaum is the oh, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so his work, I think Ann might have mentioned all these folks <laughs> yeah. also. She had the um, best I'm sorry to interrupt you. Everybody always says exactly what you say when I ask this question of like, oh, I wish I looked at my bookshelf. You should have warned me. This is the hardest mm -hmm. question. She was the only, she's the still the only one who just was just ready to go, it. just had everybody. That's it was great. great. Yeah. I'd also say like Lisa Parks. Um, that name sounds familiar. An infrastructure scholar. Okay. Uh, and one of her students who's actually, in terms of age and seniority, junior to me, but has been a great kind of mentor to oh, me. Oh, interesting. Nicole Starsielski is her name. She okay. teaches at NYU. She, again, like Neil Postman, who yeah. I admired in large part, just as much for his scholarship as yeah. for like the way he was a scholar yeah. in the world. Nicole is just an incredibly generous person. Who, When oh. she works with you on a project, there are all the base motivations that humans bring, like jealousy and kind of yeah, one-upsmanship, yeah. she just does not have that. She oh, genuinely wow. wants to make your work better and engages in a real dialogue oh, with you. So yeah. her work is great, and just the way she actually is a scholar in the world is, I think, yeah. something that's really admirable. Yeah. Another person who's like that also is Tara McPherson. She's know. at USC, a media scholar who looks a lot at like, the history of race and coding. Oh, and interesting. feminism and programming. Miriam Posner is another person okay. who's also Lauren Klein. Oh, yeah. um, See, you're doing fine. You I'm doing okay, <laughs> but I'm sure there are people yeah. who I'm not remembering at all. Um, no, this is this is great. Is there is that? Do you have another list for the person new to this, or would you recommend? Are all of those people? Would you recommend them just across the board? I don't need to add more pressure uh, to you. I think a lot of those people are accessible, or they have, I would also add UC Parica, a okay. lot of the, yeah. the archaeology people, but I think um, some of these people have uh, published in more public, uh, yeah. publicly accessible yeah. venues, so their work, they do have their kind of slightly more inaccessible, abstruse academic yeah. work, but they do have some stuff out there that is also kind of publicly accessible as well. Um, who else? I think also a lot of the more public scholarship venues that we were talking about are a right. great place to yeah. encounter yeah. these folks. Like when I write for a Places Journal. Yeah, that's where I first read you was, was a piece you'd written about libraries for oh, them yeah. a couple of years ago. Yes, yeah. And then like, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Aon. Aon oh, yeah, Aon. yeah. They publish a lot of Cabinet Magazine yeah. in Brooklyn. Actually, yeah. that's, um, yeah, so these types of venues I think are really accessible and engaging ways to encounter kind of theoretical or more academic type of work in a less stereotypically yeah. academic setting. Yeah, I love that. 
this was this was so great. I had a lot of fun. I feel like I my head is just spinning with ideas and other questions. I could easily talk to you for another hour or two about these things. So thank you so much well, sure, for your thanks. time. This was this was so fun. Thanks for joining me in my unair conditioned office. Nah, I love it. <laughs> okay. It's great. All right. This episode was recorded on February 21st, 2018 in New York City. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.